There you go. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to welcome you to the program. This is uh, uh, this is the, our year-end program. It just so happens to be the last program of the year for us. Um, by no means the last program, period, but the last program of the year. Um, and look, we're, I'm going to reflect a little bit on the year. Uh, Got to reflect a little bit on the month. But to start on a high note, uh, let me uh, do it right on air. I'm going to ask. I'm going to offer my uh, uh, happy birthday wishes to Reggie. <laughs> Reggie, I want to. Th- uh, we share a birth month, so uh, um, we're, we're going to do this together. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay. If, if you go in there with that, so I, I will exchange my happy birthday wishes to you too, sir. Well, sometimes it's better than the alternative. Uh, there's, hey, there's you a lot know of what? Things that Absolutely. Want to cheer about, right? And, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? We might as well take that positive for all it's worth and just move on with it. Yes, yes. Thank you. Well, Thank and, you. and on a somber note, I do have to you know, bid a, a farewell to, to Ralph Pointer. Um, he is not only a fellow producer and host here on WBAI, but he's a fellow activist. And, and look, I. I've known Ralph for a number of years. Um, he and Lynn Stewart were uh, really strong uh, advocates for, for for human rights in general. Uh, I know Ralph and Lynn actually made the trip up to Aquasasne, and they were involved with with some of the Mohawk issues. So we go back a ways, and uh, I was uh, sad to hear of uh, a Ralph of Ralph's passing, and uh, he he will be missed, and he b- will be missed by. Many more than uh, than myself, and so I just want to uh, want to acknowledge that. You know, it's always tough, right? It's a you look at a year, it, you know, reflecting on a year gone past, and you know, you can look, you can you can recount all the people that you've lost. You can recount the historical events. You know, I pro- I try not to go through the whole year. December is a tough month. I mean, look, we've got the murder of Sitting Bull historically. You got the massacre of mm-hmm. Wounded Knee. You've got uh, the hanging of the 38 Dakota. I'm wearing my Dakota 38 T-shirt. For those of you who are listening on radio and can't see me on Facebook live stream, I've got my Lincoln shirt with the noose in his hand and Dakota 38 listed below. Um, look, we've we got a lot of tragedy from a Native standpoint that, that has occurred in, uh, in, the, in the month of December. Um, but at the same time, I, I've got to applaud some of the things that we, we have accomplished. And uh, I, I take a lot of personal stock in pushing for things like the, the mascot issue and one of the achievements of this past year. And it's, and it's been something I've been working on for, for several years, specifically with my old high school, but specifically with a New York state ban on the use of native mascots. Uh, this is something that, you know, has worked its way through, um, uh, the the New York State Board of Regents, part of the New York State Education Department, voted unanimously to issue this ban. And I got to tell you, I, I once again want to reiterate part of the reason that I pressed this issue with the Education Department in New York State is, frankly, I didn't want, I, I refused to get involved in some of this culture wars stuff that happened that plays out politically. There's so much of that crap going on between the right and the left, and and they're and they're both guilty of it to some extent. Uh, but the the partisanship that plays into an issue like this is completely unnecessary. So the whole idea of using uh, a essentially an agency that is supposed to be an agency of professionals geared towards the education of our children, this was my best shot at pressing this away from the political landscape. And these are supposed to be more apolitical types of uh, persons. Now, Look, I know we can get into a whole debate on, you know, how left-leaning educated people are versus <laughs> not educated people who are opposed to education. Um, but in general, even though some of these appointments do come under, you know, a party's administration, I think pressing this issue with a cadre of educators was, to me, a much smarter move. And, and I got to tell you. I didn't have a whole lot of support on this thing. I mean, there are, even those people who were very much supportive of me didn't think pressing this issue 
with the New York State uh, Education Department, NYSED, was, um, was viable. They said, no, if you don't get it passed through as a law, if you don't get it codified into U.S. law, then it's you know, simply not going to, it's not going to happen. Well, I, I pressed the issue. And part of the reason I was able to press the issue was it's not new. It was over 20 years ago that a New York State Department of Education commissioner, a, a guy by the name of Richard Mills, told schools flat out, get rid of the native mascots. Do it at a time that's practical. I'm not trying to make this, this overburdensome, but this was over 20 years ago. And many schools did get rid of it. And others didn't. They doubled down. They expanded the use of their mascots, including my old school, Cambridge, New York, where they basically have, it is, it is so ubiquitous in, within that school, these mascot and these images, these logos are every freaking place. But I have to, the thing about Richard Mills that I got to point out is this was in 2001. I know people aren't good with math and aren't good with dates, but um, that's the Pataki administration. That is a Republican governor. His administration uh, having influence, if you're going to make it a political influence, on the education department. So this isn't just the liberal left elite making this happen. This was a follow-up, and I want to say a follow-up that came way too long after Richard Mills sitting in that position uh, as, uh, under a Republican uh, administration, called for the same thing. So, uh, again, I, I am pleased with the outcome. It's not quite over yet. There are, as I have mentioned on previous shows, there are four other schools still in Long Island fighting this. My old high school is still trying to fight the power of the, um, uh, of the edu education department and lost. They, are, they had, have exhausted all of their legal remedies to try to fight having to get rid of their Indians nickname and logo. And I think they finally have settled in on trying to develop a process for, for selecting a new, a new one. But we, you know, we still have schools that are saying, well, there's nothing wrong with using the word warriors. It's not necessarily uh, exclusively used for native people, except for the fact that your school used it exclusively for, uh, with native imagery for 50 years. And now you want to, you know, su suggest that what it's, Romans or, you know, American soldiers or, or whatever else the, the claim is. But um, look, I, I was glad to not only take on my high school, which I probably waited too long to do. I mean, I only started that this effort in like, I think it was December, uh, the latter part of 2020 is when I, you know, started pressing my old high school, which is probably a couple of years longer than I should have waited. But went through the process. Got it done at my school, my old high school. Uh, they haven't, like I said, they haven't selected a new mascot yet. Pressed the issue up to the New York State uh, Education Department. It got it played out in court. It's still playing out in court to some extent. But this was was this was kind of a good get. This one was kind of a big deal. And it's funny because the media hasn't covered this at all. They, they've, <laughs> other than the schools pissing and moaning about um, having to change their mascot, especially the, the wealthiest school districts in the state, you know, really crying foul about this thing, saying their First Amendment rights are being violated and all kinds of other stuff. Um, this, this is a, um, a hard win. And, and to be clear, New York State is the largest, by population standpoint, uh, from a population standpoint, the largest state in the United States to have a mascot ban, uh, at, at least uh, across the board like this. I mean, California has some limitations, but uh, you know, but as far as you know, sheer numbers and and the um, the across the board nature of this ban, uh, it is uh, it's it's pretty significant. So um, uh, again, that was a good get for this year. Now, we still have a lot of stuff. I mean, look, I, I know it's, we're going to go into a new year and everybody's going to try to remain optimistic. And, and I try to make sure that people maintain some level of hope as we take on these battles. But look, we've got climate change issues that are just uh, you know, almost incomprehensible that are, that are facing us. We, we are seeing political strife in the United States, the likes of which you know, hasn't been seen since like the Civil War. Um, you know, the, 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 the social unrest, you know, in, in, and especially between not just right and left, but you know, black and white native people get to, you know, are, are dragged into this, some of these race battles that go on. Uh, this whole idea of fighting critical race theory and ca cancel culture and wokeism and all that other stuff. I mean, it's, let, let's be honest, 
this idea of, of trying to characterize wokeism as this plague on the United States is an attack on, on social justice. That's, that's what it is. And that is not just a, a political issue. It is a social construct issue. And, and it ain't going to get better, folks. Uh, heading into uh, the U.S., heading into a presidential election that is going to be just an undeniably a debacle no matter what. There's a good chance... Reggie, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that it's going to be an old white man that wins. I, I, uh, you know, uh, checking on the the list of uh, who are supposed to be the prime uh, major, the uh, the candidates. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like old white men will prevail. Uh, old rich sadly. white men. Let's let's be old, old rich, rich white men. White yeah. men. Yes, yeah. that's right. It's old all. rich white men. Both doddering, both saying a lot of garbage in their mouths. But who am I to judge? Yeah, but supposedly. Yeah, I mean, look, I, look, there's nothing wrong with older rich white men, I guess. Uh, but apparently, <laughs> there are no younger people. There are no new ideas. There's nobody that is more no, uh, contemporaneously associated with the general uh, demographics of the United States. No, you have to have old rich white men uh, in, in this. Old position. rich white men. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that sounds about right. So there's that. Uh, but so it's a little hard for me to be too optimistic about how wonderful this coming year is going to be. And, and look, I, the previous program notwithstanding, I know, you know those people are fighting for health and education and that kind of stuff. I'm all for that. But look, we're facing, um, we are, we are going to face some tumultuous times over the, this next year uh, in, in many regards. And, you know, so... Buckle in, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. That's all I can, all I can say. Um, I don't know if you saw my um, post um, that I put on social media saying, referring to election 2024 is the disaster pick that everyone is going to watch, and we're all starring in it. Well, yeah. And, you know, and look, and even those who aren't starring in it, uh, we are vulnerable spectators. Even Oh, we have no, <laughs> we're in it, whether you like it or not. Yeah, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> well, yeah, and look, as you know, I'm not one of these guys who advocates. Um, oh no, I know uh, that advocates voting, especially Native people voting. And you know, and of course, mm -hmm. the first thing you hear is, "Well, if you don't vote, you don't have a say." Well, whatever happened to this idea of a vote of no confidence? Uh, you know, look. Either way, I mean, however this thing shakes out, there is somebody that's going to be elected in, uh, as a U.S. president who many, many people are not going to like. Uh, and, and, and look, maybe that's not even a strong enough word. Who many, many people hate is probably the uh, more appropriate word. For whatever reason. Some justifiable, some maybe not so justifiable. But uh, look, we're, it is going to be, uh, it's going to get ugly. And, and of course, we've got, again, political unrest. We've got social unrest. We've got uh, conflicts, two major conflicts, global conflicts happening. There's climate change issues that are only going to get worse. Um, we, uh, depending on how you want to view the economy, we don't know what kind of economic uh, uh, position anybody's going to be in coming into this next year. But that, you know, that can be, you know, tossed by the wayside with just with very little effort. It seems like, uh, you know, it doesn't just take a, a pandemic to destroy an economy. Uh, you know, war, unrest can, can contribute to all that stuff. And of course, just plain, plain psychological malcontent um, can, can have a big factor in all of that. So consumer confidence, as they say. Uh, so I don't know. This is, like I said, it's going to be a tough year. And, you know, I know from a, a personal standpoint, look, I, I do this show from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. I'm not in New York. I'm not in Washington. I'm, I'm safe and secure, fairly safe and secure, on a native territory uh, about 30 miles south of Buffalo, New York, rural area. But, you know, we, we have our fights here. We're, we've, we're in a constant battle with New York State. And, in fact, the Seneca Nation is going to continue to battle New York State over their gaming enterprises. And, and I have to be clear. Again, I know I've said this before, and I, but I've got to reiterate some of this. The Seneca Nation has three casinos, and the money from those casinos are essentially their sole source of finance, of public finance. It's what they run the, their nation on, their nation of, you know, 8,000 plus people. 
And, and then there are those of folks like myself who, I'm not Seneca, I'm not an enrolled Seneca, but I live here on Seneca territory. And, and I get some of the services from being here as well. So there's a lot of people who depend on the Seneca Nation's resources. And even though, look, I don't get, I don't get a check every month and not every Seneca is living this large, affluent, rich life because they have these casinos. Because look, the numbers sound impressive. When you say, look, the Seneca Nation made $2.4 billion over the last 21 years. That sounds like a lot of money. Well, they gave almost that same amount to New York State. Out of, and it was almost extorted out of them. And, and, if so, and if $4 billion sounds like a lot of money, here's something. And look, for those of you who are involved in some of the school districts in, in, uh, in New York, Long Island, uh, you know, Washington, some of those districts down in that area, I can speak for a couple of districts out here, uh, one of which I was heavily engaged in, in a mascot battle of a school by the name of Lancaster, uh, New York, a, a suburb of Buffalo. Their school budget, annual school budget, is twice the size of the Seneca Nation's annual operating budget. A school district. And I don't mean a school district of 10,000 students. I mean a school district. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's a suburb. It's not even a major. We're not talking about the city of Buffalo's school, you know, school district. We're talking about a suburb. Williamsville, another school uh, suburb here. Same thing. It's almost, four, it's, it's over $400 million a year. I mean, I'm sorry, it's over $200 million a year for those school districts, their operating budgets. And the Seneca Nation, because they have to give up half of the revenue because they've been extorted by the New York State, operates on about half of that. Their entire national budget for the Seneca Nation is half of what just, you know, not even the largest school districts in, in Western New York. So I, sometimes you got to put things in perspective. And and that's why it's so important. Now, the gaming compact the Seneca Nation has had with New York State expired at the beginning of, uh, of December. It's, it's done, um, the, the old one. So what they did is the president of Seneca Nation and the governor's office, they negotiated to continue to utilize the terms of the, uh, of the now expired compact uh, temporarily going forward while they negotiate another one. But the problem is there's still major pressure from New York State and some, sometimes from within to continue to pay New York State. Even though the Seneca Nation, after the first period of their 21-year compact, which was 14 years, when that came to an end, they stopped paying. They stopped paying because in their contract with the state, there, were no, there was no explicit terms for pay, making payments in the last seven years. So, so New York State raised hell, took them to arbitration, binding arbitration, and forced the Senecas to pay them. And when the Senecas dragged their feet, said, well, look, we want some oversight here from the Interior Department. They're supposed to be the watchdog here, which they haven't been. So then the governor, and I know I'm reiterating some of the stuff that I've talked about on previous shows, but I think it's important that people understand this. Then the governor used a law that is in place to force people who have fines due to the state. Like they have these, these penalties that are due to the state. There's a law that allows the state to freeze their assets if they are in some sort of contempt of a fine of, or of some sort. So that's what Kathy Hochul did to the Seneca Nation. She froze their operating accounts, not just the gaming accounts here. I'm saying the operating accounts for the entire Seneca Nation. She froze them. And the banks, the banks just complied. No, we're not standing up to the governor. So she froze their, their accounts, leaving I mean, checks bouncing, uh, the inability to, you know, to, you know, to pay vendors and, and employees, all kinds of stuff, and forced the Seneca Nation to pay her $560 million. Now, a quarter of that, money that she was squeezing out of the Senecas are supposed to go to the, the, the uh, municipalities around the gaming sites. So the city of Salamanca, uh, the city of Buffalo, and the city of Niagara Falls. So a quarter of that went to them. The rest of it, she turned around and gave it to a billionaire. No, uh, she, no she literally gave it to a billionaire. She took that money as if it was hers to give, and she pledged it to Terry Pagula, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, to build... A more elite, I'm not just saying more expensive, but a more elite 
football stadium where the average person isn't even going to be able to go to a game because it's going to be more in the, in the form of suites and luxury boxes and that kind of stuff. So the average schmo who thinks he's going to go tailgate at the Buffalo Bills stadium and go in and uh, take his family to the, to the Bills game, yeah, you might tailgate in the parking lot, but you're probably not getting in there because there's, it's less seats and they're more expensive seats. So you just got priced out of the game. So, you know, again, you can't make this stuff up. Well, I take it back. So obviously, somebody makes this stuff up because this is the world that we live in. Now, how it is that the state legislature let the governor take over $400 million of money that was supposed to go into state coffers for, for some very specific like economic development purposes and that kind of stuff. And to be clear, building a stadium is not economic, economic development. Every economist who's ever looked at the building of a sports arena or stadium has concluded over and over and over again, there is no intrinsic value. There's nothing that comes out of those building those, those football stadiums that spurs economic development. Uh, it is a very limited use application. Uh, this doesn't have a dome on it, so it's still going to have snow all over it for uh, you know two or three months of the year. There's only like, I don't know, what is there, eight, eight or ten games, uh, home games in a football stadium? So that's eight or ten weekends you build a football stadium, you know, for, for, again, for eight or ten games. I mean, it's insane, but that's, that's the world that we live in, right? And, and look, for all those people who think that the problems that marginalized people face is only with the right, this is a Democratic-controlled state legislature, a Democratic uh, administration in the governor's office. So... I'm not praising Republicans by any means, but look, Republicans do not have an exclusive monopoly on racism. It's just, it's just that simple. They don't. And, you know, and I got to have this conversation because we are left with this idea that we don't know what the hell to do about any of this stuff. You know, you're, the best anybody says, well, I'll make sure you go vote in the next election. Like, that's really going to do something. And look, by all means, if you're an American, vote in your elections, by, by all means. But you know what? If you decide you don't want to vote in, the, in, in those elections because you don't think you've been, been provided an adequate candidate of your choice, then don't. don't. Don't cower down to this notion that you must vote for the lesser of two evils. Because you know what? At some point, this, this crap has to bottom out. And maybe... Maybe another Trump, uh, 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 you know, term of Trump is just what the United States needs to, to do some kind of course correction. Or maybe another four years of Joe Biden is what they need for a course correction. Because anybody who suggests that Joe Biden was a great answer to Donald Trump's four years, I don't know what the heck you're smoking, but there's a whole lot better stuff being sold here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Second Nation than whatever got you to that conclusion. So, uh, look, we are in a strange world. And if all you're being offered is prayer and hope and prayer and votes, I don't know. I, I, I think we need, I, we need better than that. And, you know, and it gets me to a, to a point that, um, that I, I put a post up the, the other day. And I, maybe it was even yesterday. I don't know. But I put a post up just the other day. And I said the worst thing that was ever introduced to Native people was the idea of prayer. And look, I got some pushback from Native people on this one. I think prayer is a terrible idea because most people use prayer as an excuse not to do anything. I mean, and I see all the people. I, look, I'm on social media. Oh, I'm, my, my grandmother's ill. Still, please say prayers for my grandmother. Do you really think that's going to help? And how many people click that? And how many people say, oh, I, I, you're in my prayers? Do that? Are you really? I mean, I, I got to wonder. Anytime I see this on social media, Reggie, feel free to chime in here. But when you <laughs> see on social media, somebody says, oh, you're in my prayers. Do you really think those people are praying at night for that person? Or, or is that the limit of their thought? Their thought stopped at, oh, you're in my prayers. Or they even have emojis for it, right? <laughs> Don't they have like praying hand emojis that they can, they can put up? So that's how easy it is to make the assertion that you're going to pray for somebody. And then what happens? Does the hand of God come down and bestow his blessings on somebody because 
Is it enough people? Is it the right people? Is it the way, the way it's worded? I mean, what is it that people think the power of prayer does? I'll tell you what it does. It drains. It pacifies. And look, I know I'm going to get some people pissed off with this one, but, I, but I'm sorry. Look, and if you're going to pray, then when you get up off your knees, maybe try doing something. I mean, instead of prayer being the act that you did, how about you do an act? You, you do something. If you're concerned about somebody who's, who's ill or has a family member who's ill, then how about perform some act of kindness? I mean, order a pizza. I mean, do something. Chicken wings. I don't know. Do something for somebody. I mean, but the idea that you're going to click, you know, some sort of praying hands emoji on, on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever else you, whatever social media you have, or, or you're going to tell somebody that they're in your prayers. I don't know anybody who really prays. I, but I hear an awful lot of people say they're going to. And so the thing is, if that's what you do, I don't care how many candles you light. I don't care how much tobacco you burn or sage or how many crystals you sit under or, or any of that stuff, pyramids, whatever you think you're doing that is going to provide the mystic power for change. It's still not as much as your own two legs could do. It's still not as much as you as a human being can get up. And I don't care. I'm not just saying raise hell and protest and rally. Yeah, maybe do that. But you know what? We do have control in our hands. Maybe we don't control who sits in the White House. But you know what? We control what happens in our neighborhoods if we care to. We control what happens to our loved ones, our family members. You know, so we have to be more active. And if you're going to use hope and prayer, and look, and if prayer gives you hope, if prayer focuses your mind and helps give you direction on what to do next, if you use it almost as a meditative process or something like that or some sort of self-help or, you know, system or, or, or strategy, I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying don't only pray. And I'm not saying don't vote. I'm saying don't only vote. Because if you think that you've performed your civic obligation by going to a ballot box or lighting a candle in the church or, or, or whatever, I mean, no, you haven't. That is not what citizenship is supposed to be. That's not what, you know, and I don't, get, I don't want to get too hung up on those words on what they really mean. But as, as people, as social creatures that we are, and look, we are not, um, we're not very durable. We're, we are not very strong species. We need each other. I mean, you, uh, trust me, you drop a human being any place on the globe without other human beings, and that person's probably not going to survive, probably going to die, probably going to be eaten, going to starve, do something, because we aren't very, we, we don't have very good survival instincts. I'm not saying there aren't some people who do, though, but uh, mo in general, most people need other people, and yet we walk by each other, we dismiss each other, we, we, we backbite each other, we stab each other in the back, we do all these, these terrible things to each other. And look, I know that some of the things that I say and do Irritate people. <laughs> I, I just know it because part of what I'm trying to do is, is get people engaged. And you know what? I hate to say it, but um, uh, this birthday that I celebrated, I turned 64 years old this year. I thought I had more time. And I'm not suggesting I'm checking out anytime soon. But you know what? I'm not young anymore. I don't even know how to... Perhaps what I'm doing here on, uh, you know, on WBAI and WPFW, perhaps... This, this voice over these airwaves is misplaced. Because am I, uh, am I impacting young people? Because look, I'm almost, I know that I'm wasting my breath on older people because most older people are set in their ways. And I, you know, I, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a on the fringe, so to speak, <laughs> because I'm still active. I still do things. But man, I know an awful lot of people my age and some younger and certainly those older that you know, look, they're, they've done all they're going to do. Now, you know, it's like the prerogative of old people to sit around and bitch about stuff. Well, I can bitch too, and I do that. I kind of do that on the air. But you know what? I'm still going to do something. I'm going to help somebody. And, and it, look, it isn't about, you know, sending somebody money necessarily. I mean, I've, I've done that. And sometimes I felt good about it. Sometimes I didn't feel good about it. But, but you have to perform. Life has to be a performative 
um, uh, experience. You have to do things. It's not enough just to have an opinion and then stew about it. And look, one of the things, I mean, even from a Native standpoint, you know, I hear people say, well, Native people, they're, they're, they're prayerful people. No, that was pretty much introduced. We, we aren't and we weren't prayerful people. We got indoctrinated through years and years of residential schools. We had, we had to somehow make our culture seem parallel to established religions. So we start using words like creator instead of God. Sounds a little bit more native that way. We started talking about sky world instead of heaven. We, we start, you know, so we do all these things that kind of parallel. So it doesn't sound like what we're saying seems too different than the normal orthodoxy, so to speak. And, but what happens is we start to follow in, those same, in, the, in that same pacification that religion has done to everybody. And it stops you from doing things. You know, we're supposed to believe that the, in the afterlife, things are going to be better. Blessed are the meek. We're going to inherit the, we're going to inherit the earth. Well, how does that work exactly? So, no, I, I, this, is, this is the thing. I want people to be hopeful. But you can't stand there and be hopeful waiting for divine intervention. And I think it's fine to give thanks and to acknowledge all the good things that have come to you and that kind of stuff. But if you're falling on your knees, putting your hands together and asking for divine intervention for justice or relief, or for profit, I, look, I, I, I have no use for that. And, and, and look, you can do that. But you know what? When you get done with that, get up and make it happen. Just get up and make it happen. And look, and I know I'm going to get some people who mad at me for, for criticizing. I'm not even criticizing, you know, religion necessarily here. Because that's only part of it. I, you know, look, there, there are, there's more injustice and violence and death and destruction that is happening and, and is still happening in the name of religion than I care to think about. And as a Native person, we've been victims of that. We, I mean, hmm. There's nothing that has happened to Native people that didn't come from someone's interpretation of what God wanted them to do or what God gave them or what, how God blessed them. And you don't have to go to, to, to Gaza to see the violence that, that religion um, you know, brings with it. You don't have to right. go there. You can, you can look in your own neighborhood. You can look at how, <laughs> right. yeah, how, you've been, how, how you've been raised to, I mean, look, much of this notion of white supremacy, it is born out of religion. And, and look, and it isn't just Christians either. I mean, let's be honest, Reggie, I don't know if anybody's ever done a head count, but I got to suspect that the bulk of the population of Israel have European ancestry. I don't know if that's too much of a stretch. Um, I, I, I think the ones that identify as Israeli, uh, particularly, I think you can trace their roots to Europe. Well, and, 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 I'm, and yeah. look, there's, and that's fine that, that that's the case, but let's, let's be honest. I mean, but that's, yeah. You're, you are talking about colonialism. And, and it, it, no most doubt. of this colonialism no doubt. has strong European mm -hmm. roots, and, yeah. and that's what and that's what we've seen now. Well, that's what the extension is uh, uh, exactly. of that aspect. Yeah, and and the, and the colonial powers of Europe fully support the, mm -hmm. the violence that Israel is now perpetrating on on Palestinians, and and of course they sat back and they and they and they essentially were complicit in the violence that took place against Native people in Africa, mm -hmm. in in the Western Hemisphere, in mm -hmm. Australia. Even in Hawaii, Ho the Hawaiian kingdom was recognized throughout the world as a nation, as a sovereign nation. And the United States went in there and just took it over. And, and Europe, like, uh, you, they just kind of put their hands up, looked the other way, and, you know, pretended it wasn't happening. I mean, it, it's insane. The, Hawaii, the kingdom of Hawaii, had consulates and embassies across the globe. Across the globe. I mean, so they weren't even, I mean, they weren't even carrying themselves in some peculiar, you know, different cultural way that Europeans couldn't relate to. No, they had to, they basically called themselves a kingdom and they, they, they grabbed up some of the, uh, uh, England's parliamentary or their, you know, their monarchy uh, system. And so it was very much recognized throughout the world. And when the United States went in there and took 
Hawaii illegally, unlawfully, and occupied it, used their military and, and rich white folks again? Europe just, they just looked the other way. All of, all of those countries yeah. that, had, that had a Hawaiian kingdom embassy just looked the other way. Some of them are yeah. now yeah. trying to second guess some of that, and we don't know what, how mm-hmm. that plays out. But you know, look, these are the kinds of things, that, that's why I do this program. I mean, honestly, that's why I do this program. Because I know that I'm having conversations that you're probably not having elsewhere. And, and even if I can just plant a seed it, when, you're, when you're thinking about what's happening in Ukraine or in Gaza or in Africa or any place else, and you say, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, you know, we're, we're pretty guilty of this stuff. Look, I'm wearing my Dakota 38 t-shirt today. That is, for those who aren't familiar, the day after Christmas in 1862, 38 Dakota were hung in a massive gallows in a little town called Mankato, Minnesota. Day after Christmas. December 26, 1862. Now, again, I know people aren't good with math and they aren't good with dates, but that happens to be a week before Lincoln performs, proclaims his Emancipation Proclamation. And who do you think signed the execution order for those 38? Abraham Lincoln. And why were they executed? Well, they were executed because they were starving and they were raiding white folks, the villages of white folks, for food and resources. Now, why were they starving? Because the United States took their land. They passed the Homestead Act. And I've listened to every president of the United States praise the Homestead Act since it was passed, including Barack Obama and Donald Trump, just so we can, you know, even the scale a little bit. Praise the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act was the theft of native lands. And not only did they take the lands, but they never even fulfilled their financial commitments uh, or their, uh, you know, their... uh, resources that they were supposed to provide to the native people who now no longer had a means to sustain themselves. So the, 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 uh, the Sioux Wars, the Lakota Wars, all were born out of the Homestead Act. And that's what over 300, over 350 native people were tried in a week in a military court. 303 were found guilty and sentenced to death. And Lincoln scratched his head and said, yeah, that might be too many people to hang. That might not look good. That's not going to look good on my record. So he trims the number down to 38. And then they build this massive gallows, and it stands today as the largest mass execution in the history of the United States, signed by the, by the great emancipator a week before his Emancipation Proclamation. History needs context, folks. We've got mm-hmm. to have context to this stuff, because otherwise you're going to have every event that you ever were taught put in a silo, and you're going to believe that dropping two atomic bombs on a small island country was justified. And somebody's going to tell you why. Well, it brought a quicker end to the war. It actually saved lives. Murdering millions of, you know, uh, uh, you know several hundred thousand people at one time with one bomb, two bombs, I should say. And, and then inflicting the kind of death and destruction that would plague J- Japan for decades afterwards because of the effects of that, that it was justified. And... Let's be honest. It's not like these weren't white people. I mean, they were Asians. I mean, well, it's not like we're going to drop they, those. They, United States wasn't going to drop those bombs on Germany. I mean, look, yeah, Nazis are bad, but they're, but they're still white folks. So, no, they dropped it on a country that was essentially on their knees already. Why? Because they had bombed the crap out of them with the largest aerial assault a mere six months earlier. You ever wonder, why did they drop those bombs on Tokyo? Because they already destroyed Tokyo in March of that same year. That's why. Along with you know, half a dozen other cities. So they found, yeah, there were still two cities that were pretty much untouched by, their, you know, by this bombardment. So they dropped them on those two cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And if you don't put those things into context, then you're, then you're taught in school yeah, they, that was still a good thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's an upside to doing that. Yeah, a nuclear arms race. Congratulations. Well, so- <laughs> and also, just remember, John, those two bombs, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, 
There were civilians. Yeah, the, okay. these were not military targets. I know these were civilians. We hear the same thing. Uh, Israel says the same thing. Oh yeah, these uh, the military and these terrorists are embedded with uh, with civilians. So yes, there's going to be civilian casualties. Well, that's probably the same thing the United States says. Well, in those cities, they might have been making bombs. They might have been making you know weaponry or something like that. So, and and just to balance that that equation, Japan did not bomb the United States. No, they didn't. They bombed Pearl Harbor, which was an illegally occupied piece of the Hawaiian kingdom that right. the United States set up military shop in with their military industrial complex. They didn't bomb Honolulu. They didn't bomb Maui. They didn't bomb any of these. Other, they bombed the military base. Now, I'm not praising Japan. I'm not praising anybody who is this committed to killing people, their own and others. I think the use of war to settle conflicts is the most barbaric thing that, you know, that ever, you know, that, well, certainly the most barbaric thing that man ever developed. But it, those, that was not symmetry. That, that, that's what you call asymmetric war warfare. Yeah, they bombed the Navy base and you kill civilians. Yeah, this is, so is there any wonder why the United States is so supportive of Israel? I mean, look, it's, it's, their, it's their same M.O., it's their same MO. So, look, I, I, didn't come yeah. to, I didn't come in to do the show with a real agenda here. I wanted to mention the fact that the Seneca Nation is now mired in what is sure to be a dreadful negotiation with Kathy Hochul in New York State to come up with a gaming compact, one in which it's hard to be optimistic. I mean, because the state is really trying to keep its thumb or its fingers wrapped around the necks of the Senecas. And again, the Senecas rely on that gaming revenue. I mean, when people say, yeah, well, yeah, but they don't pay taxes. Yeah, they do. Those, those gaming facilities, 100% of the revenue from those gaming facilities are essentially the national treasury of the Seneca Nation. There's no gaming executives sitting there, you know, counting their percentages of the take. Yeah, there's employees. So when, when, the, when anybody has this idea that somehow, well, of course the Seneca's got to pay New York State. No, the law says otherwise. The law, your law, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act says, no, the states cannot force payment upon, uh, on, on native gaming sites. And in fact, it actually says in like the, the, first, uh, the first several paragraphs of the Gaming Act, it says that the law was passed to ensure that native people were the primary beneficiaries of these gaming enterprises. But they're not. Look, even, in the, even without this so-called revenue sharing, this imposed fee that Hochul has on the Senecas, even without that, Native people still aren't the, aren't the primary beneficiary. Why? Because the $1.3 billion a year worth of economic activity that is spurred on by the, these gaming facilities in Western New York they all benefit Western New York. We don't have grocery stores. We don't have you know, uh, car dealers. We don't have clothing manufacturers. We have smoke shops, gas stations, and we have cannabis facilities. So you can buy weed, tobacco, and gas. And of course, we have gaming sites. So that's what exists for, for Seneca Nation economy. And, and the reason is because it is hard it is hard to survive unless you have these huge margins associated with these overtaxed items or these overregulated items like gas, gaming, cigarettes, and, and cannabis. Only, the only things that we have this huge regulatory advantage on can we make viable because we're not, we don't have the population. We rely on white people, non-native people, coming onto our territories and, and patronizing our businesses. And they're not going to come to our territories to buy the same stuff they could buy at Walmart. Hell, we go to Walmart. So I mean, it's just not the way, the way it works. So the economic activity, every dollar that comes into a native territory leaves almost immediately. The only thing it does, I fill up my tank with gasoline. Then I drive off the ter territory to spend the rest of my money. That's the way it works. We don't have cell phone servers. We don't, we don't have cell phone companies. We don't have electronics retailers. 
We don't have furniture, uh, furniture stores. We don't have mattress stores. All those mattress stores everywhere else, there's not one single mattress store on Native Territory. <laughs> I'm not saying we need a mattress store, but I'm just saying there's, there's not one. But this is, this is the point. So when you get led into believing that, yes, it's only right that the Senecas pay New York State, no, it isn't right. It's wrong. And in fact, the law that was passed said so, said it was wrong to, to impose a fee on Native. And the only thing that, that, that was allowed was if the state offered something. Well, the state didn't offer anything. The state is the biggest competitor the Seneca Nation has to gaming. Why? Because they have the lotto, they have scratch-offs, they have quick draw, they have all kinds of lotteries, everything from the multi-state lotteries to the, you know, to the weekly lotteries. Then they have these racetracks that they turned into slot, uh, into casinos essentially, with thousands of, uh, of slot machines in them, directly competing against native gaming. Then they offered sports betting, and now you can do sports betting on your phone, so you don't even have to go into a brick-and-mortar facility to do it. Now they're going to offer mobile betting so you can play slot machines. You don't, have to go, you don't even have to go to a racetrack anymore. So this is how the, the state keeps taking more and more of the market share that the Senecas supposedly were paying to protect. Like I said, I can't say you can't make this stuff up because somebody made this stuff up. And this is the world that we live in. So, yeah, next year is going to be a lot more of the same, folks. Uh, only some of it's going to get worse. We don't know what's going to happen between the Seneca Nation and New York State. It's hard to be excited about uh, the prospects of, uh, of some great opportunity. I mean, as it is, like I said, the Seneca Nation stopped paying in 2016, at the end of 2016. And then they were extorted for the money that they had uh, put aside in case they had to pay it. They, they were forced to pay it. Now they're into a, a temporary use of the previous compact until they negotiate a new one. It's not even clear whether they're still paying. The assumption is that they are. They may only be putting it into an escrow account, but either way, it's still being tallied up. Money to go to New York State still being tallied up. And the expectation is that it's not a question of whether the Senecas will uh, continue to have revenue sharing with New York State. It's a question of how much. The way it's been, almost 50% of the gaming revenue was going to New York State. Almost 50% of the net was going to New York State. Now, what's it going to be now? Is it, it'll probably be less than that, but is it going to be 30%? Is it going to be 20%? The state's saying, oh, hell no. No, we still want it closer to 50%. So it's... It's, you know, there's this level of insanity that goes with the relationship. As I said, if you haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon, or if you haven't read the book, or if you haven't seen any of, any of Greg Palace stuff that he's doing, he's got a film coming out called Long Knives that's coming out this year, which is more of a documentary form, uh, you know, kind of investigative journalism kind of thing. It exposes the Koch brothers and, and how much they've ripped off the Osage. But if you look, if you know that story, what you know and what you should be appalled with is the notion that the United States said to those Osage people, you are too incompetent and untrustworthy to, ha to have access to your own money. Yeah, you're the wealthiest people in the world because oil got discovered under your land. But you know what? We're going to make sure that white people uh, are, are your guardians. They're the ones who are going to protect you, even as they're complicit in your murders. <laughs> yeah, so the Osage could not have access to their own money because the federal government deemed them unworthy, incompetent, untrustworthy, just too ignorant to have control over their own money. So they put white people in control of it. Well, that's exactly what the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act says. It says, Native people, you are too incompetent, you are too untrustworthy, you are too uncivilized to run a gaming enterprise. I know you've done it for 21 years, but we still don't think that you are capable of doing it without us making sure the state has a stake in your, in your game. Now, not a stake in terms of investment. We just mean a stake in the control and the revenue of your gaming facilities. That's what the federal government says. Doesn't matter. Deb Hallen, native person, sitting there in the interior department. She didn't change anything. It's still happening. The same thing continues to happen. 
I just heard a story today about two Native people being put into federal judgeships, one in the Southwest and one in on Hawaii or something like that. Well, what is that supposed to mean? You know what happens when you have a Native judge? The first thing that happens if it's a, a case involving Native people, oh, that judge is going to have to recuse themselves. Why do white people recuse themselves as judges when white people are on trial? No. Of course not. But, and, and so the, what happens is a Native person who sits in these federal judge positions, they are under such scrutiny not to show any favoritism towards the Native people that they come from that they are oftentimes some of the worst adjudicators. Remember, anybody remember the name Diane Humatiwa? Yeah, she was, a, she was nominated as a, as a federal judge under the Obama administration, recommended by the Republicans, McCain and Flake. Her first case had to do with a highway going through Native territories, ancestral Native territories. She ruled against the Native people. And now they're, they're saying, no, you can't bring up any, any other issues. You, you lost that case. So the only case, her first and primary case that she, that she had in front of her involving Native people, she ruled against Native people. Yeah, so how do we benefit from a Native judge? I don't know. All right, wait, look, <laughs> we are just about out of time. Uh, this was really kind of my year-end show, my chance to, to get my last rant in for 2023. Uh, trust me, I'll have plenty more in 2024. <laughs> but uh, look, I want to thank, um, thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you for listening both in New York on WBAI and in Washington on WPFW. I want to thank Reggie for not just, for, you know, for pushing buttons and, you know, sliding the slides there on the board here, but for participating. Reggie, it is always a pleasure to have you engaged in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, of course. I'm not saying that you add color to the, uh, because <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will say it is great to have another voice. Uh, you look, I haven't had a, a co-host uh, for, for quite a period of time here. Right. So <laughs> you're the closest thing I got, Reggie, and I greatly appreciate hey, it. Hey, I, I hey, look, I'll I'll take that as a compliment anytime. Yes. And look, and, and <laughs> I also gotta say, I I appreciate Michael G having me on his show and some of the others who have had me as guests on their shows. It's uh, it is it's great to have the opportunity to to speak to the people in New York City and to the people in, in Washington, DC. I do hope the one thing that 2024 will will allow me to do is to travel more. I hope to make it to New York. I hope to make it to Washington. I hope to do a lot more speaking engagements. So let people know I'm available. Uh, if you want to, if you want somebody to yell to yell at you for a half hour or 45 minutes, <laughs> call me up. I'll do it. So I want to thank everybody. I I do wish people the happiest New Year they can have. And look, I I wish you hope. I wish you hope. This is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio, Yahweh.